Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Victor Saad is a super interesting guy. He and I have swum in similar circles because back in 2012, he was taking a self-designed master's program. He essentially pieced together 12 different experiences, which looked a lot like apprenticeships or internships, over 12 months and created a a year-long experience in business instead of paying a bunch of money for an MBA. And that was the same time that I was publishing Better Than College, How to Build a Successful Life Without a Four-Year Degree. And so we knew about each other's work and admired it from afar, but we never connected. But that ends today. I finally got Victor uh, on the podcast to do an interview. And you'll hear all about his story. I just want to make sure that you know that he has a really cool company called the Experience Institute. It's experienceinstitute.com. And they run programs that are similar to the the project that Victor did for himself for young people who are in uh, college or who are just out of college or people who are kind of in between careers and looking for a new experience and maybe considering going back and doing something like an, an MBA or a master's. So definitely check out Experience Institute. And he also has this cool product for those who don't want to go sign up for some big you know, semester or year-long program. It's called the Leap Kit. And I got one of these and I checked it out and it's uh, it's sort of like a, a guided discovery process for making a big transition in your life. I'm a big fan of it. So just go Google LeapKit. You'll find it. All right. Enough of me marketing for Victor, even though he deserves it. I'll let him speak for himself. My guest today is Victor Saad, the founder of the Experience Institute. And in 2015, Forbes nominated him as a 30 under, under 30 recipient of their education award. So welcome, Victor. Hey, thanks for having me. Victor, you were supposed to say, uh, you know, you're supposed to do this humble brag. What happened? Well, that's true. I was. I, I actually, for those of you listening, I didn't want him to mention that I was Forbes 30 under 30. And he's like, look, within the first minute, we got to hook the listener and they need <laughs> to know you're a big deal. And, and so because of that, I I said, okay, you can mention the Forbes thing. But uh but really, we're glad you're listening, and we just wanted you to be here. That's all. So, that's, <laughs> please that's continue point. listening. Please, <laughs> we beg of you. Uh, so, a little bit more background about Victor. Uh, he and I have been swimming in similar circles for the past few years, and we have a number of common friends, and and we have admired each other's work from afar. But this is the first time we've actually connected. So, we've talked for about ten minutes before jumping into this podcast, so and it's been a really good ten minutes. I mean, it's been excellent. You're in for a treat, whoever's listening to this. <laughs> Okay, let's dive into this, Victor. Yeah. So uh, let's start with your basic background, your basic story. Give us the nutshell version so that we know where you're coming from. Well, um, I was okay. So backing up a little bit, I'm you know just just in my early 30s now, and in my mid 20s, I was working with a middle school and high school program in the west suburbs of Chicago, and was really curious about um, business. I had gotten, I had received my education in education and um, found this awesome job with a a church in the West suburbs where I got to help build a student center uh, for middle school and high school students to spend time after school and on the weekends. So those, um, so we had a tutoring lab and a theater and a cafe and the whole thing was funded by philanthropic dollars. But, you know, 
I, I just thought like, wow, what, we have such a great space and great programs. Could we find a way to make this thing sustainable? And it led, that question kind of led me to being really curious about businesses that were both for profit and also had a mission to them. So for profit, for purpose or social enterprise. And there's some great programs in Chicago. And I thought I, I could get an MBA in that arena but the costs are really high and the styles didn't fit me of like that style of just being in school for two years, spending a ton of money, being in, in you know, a traditional classroom. So I thought, it could, you know, about ways I could get the same sort of results, you know, the credibility and the network and some practical tools and thought I could spend a year sort of designing my education through experiences around the world. So it was going, we were going into 2012. All this was, all this thinking was happening in 2011. And um, I thought I could call it a leap year. 2012 was actually a leap year. And I thought 12 projects, 12 months in 2012. And with that, my sort of self-designed masters um, w emerged. And um, yeah, I spent all of 2012 traveling to 12 different places, uh, basically finding a four-week project with a company or organization or individual to work with them, create something simple but helpful for them, and in turn learn about that industry. And really focused on uh, design agencies, uh, small startups that so can learn about business, or uh, nonprofits or impact organizations so I could learn about what it really means to make an impact in the community. And yeah, that was my, that's how it all, how, why I'm on this call is that essentially initial <laughs> story. And were you doing all this with the idea of going back to the West Chicago middle and high school program and somehow making that more sustainable or d did you diverge from that path? No, I, I did diverge from that path and I loved my job and my staff and my people or my people. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> my team and so on. But, um, but yeah, I think I think I was really curious about what else was out there. Um, working in that specific space in town felt like I would, you know, could possibly hit a ceiling, and was curious how else I could grow into sort of other industries. So yeah, I was really curious about what, where else I fit in the world. Hmm. And you took this twelve-month project you called the Leap Year Project, and it seems like you quickly turned it into a program for other people to sign up for, which was called Experience Institute. It, was, it seemed like it just happened like the next year. Is that the, the whole story? Yeah. I mean, I, at the end of 2012, there were a lot of folks who I'd worked with who said, hey, if you want to come back and work here, um, you're, you're welcome to. And, uh, you know, I had invitations, most of them just kind of verbal, nothing, no formal offers per se. But I had a lot of opportunities to, to go work with a team and at the same time, I was 27, I think, at the time, and had an idea to um, kind of keep pursuing this road of education through a sort of similar construct of what I just made. And it just felt like the timing of both my own personal life and the timing of just kind of the um, with the momentum of Leap Year Project that, that I could possibly mm -hmm. get something off the ground pretty quickly. And in the sort of think, um, st style of not overthinking and not trying to um, wait until everything was just perfect, I was like, well, let's, let's give it a go. You know, um, a couple months after I finished, I um, was giving a TED, that, that TED Talk that you mentioned, and 
thought, okay, like I could announce it there, get a handful of students by the fall and see if it works. And if it does, great. And if not, then, you know, I have the book and we'll just talk to people about helping them design their own kind of gap year or gap semester or whatever. And that was it. Um, so yeah, it happened pretty quickly, Blake. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about Experience Institute. Are you essentially having people replicate your experience of of spending a year getting different apprenticeships and traveling? Um, and also, who is this for? Who is it meant to serve? So it, it's a very similar setup, but not quite exactly the same. There were a couple things that I realized in my year that I really missed out on that I, I would have loved to have had. And so I've been trying to find ways to... Um, sort of fill in the program for people without taking away the sort of designing your own year as well. So a couple things that we did. One, instead of 12 projects in 12 months, it's three in the court in the matter of a year. So you're doing a fall, spring, and summer apprenticeship. So a little easier to convince a company to let you in their doors when you're going to be there a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Also, um, we added some curriculum so that you can kind of ground your year in some helpful content that that's going to be helpful no matter what industry you're in. So learning how a business works, so learning the kind of ins and outs of business operations, uh, learning how to solve problems. So we use design thinking and and teach design thinking as sort of a core problem-solving process. And then lastly, learning how to tell a story. Um, This idea that uh, every good business, organization, individual, society has a story, but telling that story can be really challenging. If you do it well, it, it leads to growing your community, growing your business, or um, just growing your sort of audience. Um, so we, we teach those three things mainly, and then we uh, also talk a lot about self-awareness in, throughout the year. So that's one of the big things, or those are the two big things that have changed with, from what I did to what Experience Institute has been offering. Um, and then most recently, we've even done, we're now making a three-month program, which we can kind of talk about in a bit but the sure, and what, what's that three-month program called it's just the it's actually a, a leap semester so we have the leap year and then leap semester um and that's essentially the same thing just instead of doing 12 months you're doing three got it okay so you discovered that companies are probably more interested in having somebody for three months instead of one month and also there's this whole curriculum that I, did you wish that somebody had shared these concepts and business and design thinking and storytelling with you before you embarked upon your year? I think, you know, one of the things I, that would have helped me, um, like once again, kind of ground the year is having sort of some tools in a toolbox that I could implement right away for a company. So a lot of times what I was doing was I'd get to a company and they tell me, Uh, Like I'd interview everyone on staff or not everyone, at least depending on how big the company was, um, at least a handful of people, I'd hear sort of a thread of a problem. And within the first week, I'd suggest, hey, this is what I could work on. I'd essentially pitch my own sort of project back to them based off of those interviews. And, you know, there were times where I was like, oh, gosh, the problem here is that, um, I think our one solution here could be that you need to research this whole market segment that you're kind of ignoring um, and that there's some like just natural energy around and we need to figure out what sort of how to tweak the product for this market segment or create a new version of the product, Um, which was like a flat at the time, either a flash sale site for American made products or a gum flavor for um, this sort of social good, uh, everyday product manufacturer anyway so you know 
how do you like there's there are processes for that right and i think if i would have had those tools in my toolbox or you know at least a community of people to kind of go back to and say hey this is what i have to do where what should i read what should i do it would have it would have expedited my impact um and i don't think i needed a full-on class like i don't think i needed two years of it or a three-month thing i think i just needed sort of a, a touch on it and then needed to then go practice it and i think that's mm-hmm. what's happening with ei is now we, you can come into class for a couple of weeks and re- within a couple of weeks, just have enough of an understanding of a topic to then continue learning it, maybe through ongoing reading. That, and we, we've created some curriculum throughout the year too. But what the sweet part is you get to take that toolbox and pretty quickly start using it um, at, a, at a company. And I, that's, I did miss that, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And pe- there are other people that obviously are doing this without any curriculum and are piecing together online learning and just like calls with friends and are making it work. But this, once again, gives a sense of uh, and just a, probably a few more boundaries so you know what what field to play on. And, and uh, oh gosh, I'm mixing analogies now. And a few more, tool, <laughs> a few more tools to actually use on when you're on that yeah. field. Uh, so when you did this for yourself, Victor, you were essentially coming into these companies, it sounds like, as a, a consultant of some sort. You you talk to people, and within a week, you're figuring out what some significant problem or roadblock is for this company, and you are consulting them and saying, here, here's what we can work on in the next three weeks, or here's something you can start and continue once I'm gone. And so you were bringing a whole set of skills and business awareness into this project in, in, initially. So w- where did that come from? Well, I, I mean, I had been in the marketplace for a few years. I'd been working with middle, those middle school and high school students and built a student program and had also done, um, like, helped build the space that I was actually uh, working on. So I got to learn some basics there. And then I had also just been reading and watching a lot of what was happening in the social, in the social entrepreneurship space. So those things gave me a little bit of a base. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately... Uh, there was just a sort of curiosity in in me, and I think with you, with a lot of the people who are in this space, we're kind of um, just naturally problem solvers for whatever reason. Probably something that goes all the way back to how we were brought up, whether you know a teacher or a tough situation that we navigated or something made us problem solvers, and. Uh, that got nurtured or fostered, and I and I have a couple of my own kind of sort of personal stories on that front that got there. And so by the time I was doing Leap Year Project, I really wasn't like I wasn't to the place where I how do I say this without sounding? I there were very few things that I didn't think couldn't be solved. Like I was just like, oh, there's got to be a way. There's you know, just chip away at it, and it, you'll get through it. Um, and and. I think a lot of times I just start for me started by listening and a lot of that understanding came from just being around good people, good books, good videos, uh, good conferences. And then, yeah. Are you, are you sure your parents didn't just drop you off as an infant in the Stanford design school and then come back 17 years later to pick you up? Um, as far as I know, my parents don't even know what the Stanford design school is still. <laughs> <laughs> so they're trying to wrap their head around what the heck that place is. They they like the Stanford thing, but I don't know if they know what's going on with the design school. So I'm sure that's that's the case. Uh, yeah. You mentioned your, in your TEDx talk that you were raised in a family that highly valued traditional achievement. You were expected to go on and become some sort of professional doctor, lawyer, banker, something like that. 
Um, did you have to surmount uh, family criticism or pressure or disappointment uh, when you did not take one of those paths? Yeah, I mean, I think that happened more so in high school, knowing that I had some raw ability to um, excel in school, traditional school. Um, I mean, raw ability in the sense that, like, I just worked really hard and knew how to please a teacher. Um, but I also really loved human anatomy and thought, you know, I mean, my mom really wanted me to become a doctor. Um, and I understand why, especially now after experiencing, like, being in the world for 10 years post-college, right? Like, you know, if you, you have a good life, if you become a doctor in a lot of cases, um, depending on if you keep your head on straight. But, um, so I understand what they wanted, why they wanted that. And as a son, you want to make your parents proud. And so it was really hard, especially because I, I mean, I adore my mom. Um, and so when you're, when you're standing across from your parents and you're, <clears throat> and they're, and you're, and you're realizing you're kind of squashing their dreams and my parents are immigrants. So they came here to help create a better life. So, I mean, yeah, I think education and vocation and, uh, familial expectations are so intertwined. It's, it's mm -hmm. really, really hard to try to unwrap that twine, you know? And, um, yeah. And I think even even like we you and I both talk a lot about self-directed or self-designed learning and very few things in life are really designed by one person whether you want to admit it or not um and, and or, or nothing ever yeah it's, yeah. it's completely self-authored yeah exactly so so you know even my if I'm really honest with myself the reason why I was able to do my year and where I think a lot of people are is because it's not that they're not listening to anyone and just themselves. They're just changing who they're listening to. Um, and so not doing what my parents said was, wasn't hard because I wasn't doing what my parents said. It was hard because I was realized, I didn't realize like there were other things that were now beginning to shape my values besides my parents. Um, and that in and of itself is like a, is a growing pain, you know, and also a, a sign of good growth, I think in some ways too. Um, and did one of those signs come out in the high school era? Uh, was there a, a moment of change or was it a slow buildup for you? I think it was probably a slow buildup, but I, you know, most of my summers I started um, working or doing like service trips or traveling internationally to, yeah, I mean, all of them were service trips, whether it was uh, hurricane relief or it was orphanage work. I, you know, I work <clears throat> when my parents divorced when I was in middle school, I got really involved in my youth group and I found a lot of solace in, um, helping other people. It was just my, it was very fulfilling, rewarding. It felt like, um, you know, in, in the middle of a lot of like young kid angst that it was kind of a, a sort of relief and release to focus on other people's challenges and not try to be helpful. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that that's, it was a slow build with every trip. I realized like, okay, like, yes, I want to have a good living and a good life, but I don't know if that's tied to the, the sort of traditional things that my parents brought me here for. Um, and I was watching it over and over again. Uh, with my youth pastors, with my teachers, with my soccer coach, with with the directors of nonprofits, um, and so yeah, 
Hmm. Well, we we share a passion for travel as a eye-opening experience for young people. Yeah. Yeah. And um and you've and, done And how for you like yeah, I guess essentially like were were there those expectations for you, Blake? You know, it, not to the same extent. Um I think the main expectation was go get a bachelor's degree. And but you know my parents were very cool with whatever college I decided to go to. There wasn't some pressure to to go to an Ivy League school, and uh, you know they didn't really influence what I wanted to study. And so it was a, a little more copacetic on mm. on this end. But um, yeah, you know there's still that implicit expectation that yeah. college equals uh, success. Mm-hmm. And and you have produced so much great. Uh, stuff, whether it's programs, uh, talks, all, every video that you have out there is just masterfully done. Uh, you picked that skill up sometime a long time ago, I imagine. Yeah. And and uh, everything that I found on the internet about you, you have good stuff out there about uh, critiquing higher education and especially this idea that we need to go back to school to get a master's program or perhaps even to get an undergraduate degree in, in order to learn the things that we need to be you know, successful and so I'm curious where the, these ideas extend as we go farther back in the realm of education, back into the mm-hmm. K through 12 area. And because it seems like you don't have as much published work thinking about that, but you do have some significant experience having worked in Chicago with uh, the middle and high school groups. And so, yeah, I, I'd like to open it up here, Victor, for your thoughts on what works, what doesn't work, what's good, what's bad, what trends are emerging in the the secondary school realm. So what do you have to say about that? <clears throat> so, I mean, I think there are some, some amazing things happening in high school education or, you know, even K-12, um, you know, going way younger. I think things like Montessori school or Waldorf, um, those programs are, are much more sort of experiential. I think there's a lot more to figure out because parents are even more involved in the in the sort of especially k-8 space and then i think once again in the high school space it just it feels like like if 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 college is um i don't know a uh, if college is a city it feels like k-12 is like um, a state, you know, like <laughs> just way more to navigate in a lot of cases. Like it just, uh-huh. there's so many more spots to visit and so much more road to cover and that it's hard. It's kind of hard for me to think about all the ways that this would impact that. I think in the high school space, some of the work that we've done, uh, that we got just sort of kind of fell into over the past couple of years was applying design thinking, which is a very experiential problem-solving process, to very traditional sort of classroom settings. So teaching history or science or math through a more project-based mentality that included sourcing projects from the community. So sending high school students into the community, finding challenges by doing interviews with certain departments, teams, companies, understanding what their challenges were, bringing those back in, and then with the with the support and sort of facilitation of a teacher, actually addressing those problems so that they learn the content and also make something out of it. 
And that was, I mean, writing that curriculum, to be completely honest, I, I didn't do the in, in the weeds writing. That was my partner in a small team that we pulled together. Um, but that like writing that curriculum and delivering it was really rewarding and gave us a glimpse of kind of what this could look like. Some of our other work could, um, look like in this space. And then we even got, uh, brought in to help like alongside the curriculum is actually thinking about what the space should look like. Um, so rethinking, mm-hmm. you know, right now you have kids sitting in desks in rows, uh, turning things into one person, listening from one person and so on. Well, that, that mentality doesn't work if you're think if you're using the curriculum we wrote. So making all the surfaces, you know, writable, making all the furniture movable, not having a front of the classroom um, and not having like a teacher's desk, but more of a, a standing desk where that, you know, that's kind of the landing spot for whoever is presenting, uh, making that sort of democratization of the classroom that we all, we're all in this learning space together. And so those, those kind of things were, were really exciting to see that once again, I, we didn't anticipate as EI that we would be going into those, into that world, but it just, it just came upon us and we, we took it and we, we were like, yeah, we can do this work. So, um, sorry, you didn't anticipate going into the higher education world with EI? Oh, so sorry, the K-12, like doing, so that project was all in, uh, high, the high school space. Yeah. And so I didn't, I didn't anticipate going into secondary education with it. And that was kind of our, our foray. And honestly, what we what we really got excited about when we were there was like oh gosh like every teacher we talked about about what we were doing in college uh, and grad school about helping people design you know uh, their sort of year in the world through experiences but having curriculum that gave, that grounded them um they were really excited about it. They're like, gosh, so many high school students need to take a gap year, need to take space away. I wonder, they wondered how do we support those students? Or even while those students, while high school students are juniors or seniors, a really sort of pivotal, pivotal, pivotal point, how do you help them kind of take ownership of a semester of their, like one of their last semesters in mm-hmm. high school? Like could they, with the support of a, of a, of a community, so... Yeah, and I've heard so many different schemes for doing that, which is essentially like the senior year, kind of loosen up the reins in the senior yeah, year, yeah. Let, let it be more self-directed. But, you know, it's still, you know, even when it's supposedly self-directed, it's like, okay, you have to choose something that fits within the, the, the box of uh, state-mandated curriculum. So it has to be somehow connected to right. X, Y, and Z <clears throat> academic fields. Which is why a gap year, which I, just for the record, I'm not a huge fan of the term gap year, just... I, it's one of my things like I, it's not a gap you're actually like I feel like do you're doing sometimes more in that year than ever so that's why I, I, I really like other terms whether it's a leap year or a do year an experience year or like one of our students call his name was Zeke and he called it a Zeke year and he was taking <laughs> you know, like whatever you know what? I, I'm gonna go take a Zeke year yeah just in, in honor of that guy <laughs> or a Blake year yeah just put your first name in there Blake year uh, yeah um Anyway, so all that to say, uh, I think that's why the, that space is probably just it's just easier, right? Like you don't have to worry about all of the regulation. You literally can do anything, but it's all harder because you have you have to start from scratch every time. Yeah, well, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who are starting from scratch in the K through 12 realm, and you know, the easiest way to circumvent regulation in that realm is to just 
declare yourself a homeschooler. Mm. It's just, it's so simple. It's a single piece of paper for, in most states. Really? It's and that easy, huh? It's that easy. In California, you sign a piece of paper and then there is no follow-up after that. <laughs> your, your kid is a homeschooler. There's no standardized tests to take. There's no you know, home visits from uh, whatever child or protective services unless somebody's you know, reporting abuse. It's, it's a complete blank, uh, blank slate. And you can do whatever you'd like. It's it's incredible that not more people know about this because it's it's kind of this wild west frontier of education where you can still do what you want without significant regulation. And so, um, it, yeah, I'm just such a fan. I, I don't like the the phrase homeschooling. I don't really like the phrase unschooling, and for reasons similar to you know, we right. don't like gap year. Yeah. But uh, but the fact that we have the legal right to just pull our kids out of school and do whatever we want with them, I think is incredible that we have it. And there's so many other countries, like a majority of countries in the world, where you just don't have that legal right, or it's right. severely curtailed. That's great. Um, yeah, that's good to know. And so, are you? Do you guide people through that process, or do you have like some like print materials, or how do you how do no, you help? That, that's not a good like, use of my time. Like you can Google that for ten minutes, and yeah, you'll figure it out. Totally. Yeah, and there's other people who are at, good at guiding them through it. But usually, you know, a lot of people think when they start taking that path that that's going to be the big hurdle. Um, you know, figuring out how to you know do the paperwork to escape the school system that's that's the smallest hurdle in the world the big hurdle is figuring out your relationship with your child that's uh, the the thorny mess right there right right um, so uh, you have talked a lot about social enterprise uh and design thinking and the word innovation is wrapped up in into all of this and it's sort of our like modern religion right that's preached in in silicon valley and and burning man and um <laughs> A realm where I don't see much innovation happening, and I wonder if you've thought about this, is, uh, again, this realm of K through 12, uh, where the type of – if we look at innovation in middle schools or high schools, you see some charter schools that are out there, but mostly they're focused on uh, doing college prep better. Um, you see uh, some innovation in these tiny little you know, private hippie schools, the ones that I'm a fan of, uh, but those are not necessarily financially accessible to a lot of families. Um, do you have you thought about mechanisms for making K through twelve a lot more innovative? Because as you said, it's a lot different from like the college realm, uh, where you can start a gap year program and, and pretty much nobody's going to tell you not to right. do that. Um, you can start an alternative college, and unless you want to get formally accredited, nobody's going to tell you you know what you can or cannot do. Um, so, what about innovation? You know, why do our schools look the same as they did a hundred years ago, more or less? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot obviously being written about this, and I, as I read about it, and as I like um, try to wrap my head around it, there, there, it feels like there's not a um, like a easy answer to any of this, um, both to the history of it and then also for to the future of it. I think for the history, the I, I mean, part of this is just an efficiency and logistics kind of nightmare. Like, how do we educate a lot of people um, and hold everyone to a similar standard and get people kind of prepared for the workforce. I mean, there's just a number of things and we just are leaning on old, old tools, old mechanisms that have lasted a century and updating that for a lot of people is just not necessarily easy. So going from where we are to where we want to be, 
um, which we'll get to talk to in a second, is going to take time. And I think a lot of the things that a lot of the conversation that I have with um, with teachers, with parents, with students, is don't try to eat the elephant. Like figure out where where to start, where you, your school district, your classroom, your neighborhood can start and start doing things and then document it really well and share that with other people because that's what kind of tips the domino for other schools. Now, um, and other parents and other students and so on, it, it's going to be more of a virus than it is going to be a product that changes everything, Ooh, changes us. I, uh, I like that analogy. And just for the record, I do not understand what you mean by eating the elephants. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry. I apologize. I actually, uh, that's probably in, inappropriate for anyone who's vegetarian. I'm incredibly sorry or <laughs> vegan. I apologize. The, the idea is there is like, uh, you can't solve it all at once. Um, you, so <laughs> that's it. I, I think you only eat small parts of the elephant. Yeah. Like that, dine on that, the, that, the that, I probably, it, it's a, it's a, you, it's a saying. I can't, I don't know. I never really use it. All right. We'll but Google now, that later. Yeah. I want to Google it right now, but I'm not going to type because then whoever's <laughs> listening is going to hear me typing and that's inappropriate, yeah, but yeah. thank you. All right. So, uh, don't, uh, try to eat the entire pumpkin, uh, just start with the seeds, uh, because it's just a lot of bites out of that pumpkin. You know, you can't do it all at once. <laughs> I, okay. I'm done. I'm done. Um, okay. Anyway, so it's going to be more of a, more of a virus. So the idea is it, this is a, this is design thinking again. It's right. like find some way to, to iterate on a good idea in your local community uh, do that a few times and then share your results publicly with people so that you can cross-pollinate, you can inspire people in other places. And, and that's the process of gradual change that will lead to big effects down the road. Exactly. Yeah. And I, there are some great schools out there that you can get inspiration from. I, one of my one of my heroes in this space is Sarah. Uh, I think it's her name. Her last name is Elizabeth Ipel or Ipel Elizabeth. Sarah Elizabeth Ipel. Um, and she is – the founder of the Academy for Global Citizenship here in Chicago. It's a K-8 school. Um, and she has a handful of pillars, uh, things like sustainability and um, environmentalism. environmentalism. Um, I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm going to come back to those pillars. They'll come to me in a moment, but she's writing she, she started a school that has garnered a ton of attention, but she started really small. She started with just like a classroom and piloting her ideas and then started with a small group of kids and then really kind of taking these, uh, or I should say a small group of families who sent their kids to a school that she, you know, had kind of was starting and piloting, not too dissimilar than, um, you know, any other sort of startup, you know, just getting, getting sort of off the ground. And then eventually now she's raised $35 million and is going to create a brand new sort of school of the future here in Chicago. And she's kind of, and that was, but she started 12 years ago with a very small sort of um, idea. And I think with, with wherever you are, one of the things that I, I really appreciate about Sarah is her ability to bring thought leaders or people that are doing really interesting things in the city or in society at large and and bring them into sort of the kind of K8 space and give their give kids access to that knowledge and information mm -hmm. early on and i think cuz so much of education at that age is just gaining access, like learning about what's happening. And then once you see what's happening and the impact of what's happening, you get curious about how those people are doing it. And then that's what ends up changing what you do. Um, so 
I, I, it's it's a shame that the whole sort of like TED Talk lecture series and like a lot of this sort of um, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of this sort of like travel and move around the world and get into interesting spaces is left for older audiences, which obviously that's why we're talking about what this looks like in the younger audience. But I think if if kids see that earlier on, they they know why they want to learn. And that's, that's, that's really, really important. Hmm. Um, so l- l- Victor, I want to pose a thought experiment for you. Let's say you're in Sarah's shoes. She's the one who started Academy for Global Citizenship, right? Right. And you have 10 teenagers from Chicago, sort of mixed uh, income levels, kind of a, a swath of Chicago. Um, and and let's say recently there had been a court order banning you from working with anyone over age 18. And so, you know, Experience Institute was shut down. Uh, you know, your offices were raided. And wow, this is dramatic. Yeah, you go to jail for six months Gosh. and you have all sorts of bad experiences there. But you're out of jail now and somebody decides it's a good idea to give you 10 teenagers and, uh, and a little bit of seed money to start a new program for them. And let's say it's a mixed age group. So you have ages 13 to 17 in there. Uh, what would you do with those kids? You know, I like n- without trying to sound too crazy, I think I would um, start by teaching them uh, what it means to ask a good question and to do good research. Um, I think that's the root of all learning is uh learning how to ask a good question. So inquiry, essentially. Um, and then I would send them, I'd set them loose to ask questions of people in their community and see what they find. So maybe create a certain sort of like categorize the community based on business leaders, uh, organizational sort of leaders, city officials, um, public service, uh, like just, just thinking about how do we dissect sort of our our neighborhood wherever our neighborhood is and let's get to know who's around us and figure out what their biggest challenges are and then bring them sort of bring all of that back in and then say okay like what things are really exciting for you that's happening or what things are really sad to you what things are really um aggravating um frustrating whatever it might be who what was the most what, you know who did you want to continue talking with and why and then from there think about okay like what is it that we we're going to do for this community that we want to make, create, change, impact, and then let's start figuring out how to learn how to make those things. Hmm. You, you sound like John Taylor Gatto, the New York City school teacher who won all those those awards and then quit yeah, teaching. Yeah, yeah, so that's what he did. Yeah, did he quit? Oh yeah, that was his claim to fame. He won Teacher of the Year award in New York City and New York State in 1991, and then he quit. And wrote an op-ed to the Wall Street Journal saying he no longer wanted to make a living hurting kids anymore. Oh, gosh. That's brutal. <laughs> it's like a moment for that. Wow. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, that's – so uh, yeah, let's compare me to the first half of his life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so – the other thing I think I would I would want to figure out how to do for that age group is include parents a lot. Um, hmm. You know, I just I, it, it baffles me that school becomes some sort of like babysitting for kids while parents are often making money. And a lot of times, like the reason why you know if you go, if you send a kid to a good school, you need to even go make more money, so you have to work harder. But at yeah. the cost of what? At the cost of like losing and t- losing touch with their kids and that's really sad and and i get it like 
Um, I mean, obviously, I, I don't have kids or anything of the sort, nowhere near it, but uh, I, I understand the sort of pressures of the day, the put food on the table and so on, but I don't know. It just it feels like when your kids are young, I to to just spend as much time learning with them, and and that like the fact that you are that parents learn with their kids, or like the fact if I'm a kid and my parent is learning with me. That in and of itself might be the most important lesson that my umpteen-year-old parent is still curious and learning with me. Um, that's that's just an incredible lesson. And then those are the people that you're you know having dinner with. Those are the people that you know as a kid you can continue having the conversations with. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think I would want to somehow into my little ten-person program that you've created for me to run is make sure that everyone knows everyone's parents, everyone knows what they do for a living, and all those parents know what we're solving, making, creating, um, and that that there's just like it's just obvious that we're all in this together. Hmm. So just just essentially break out of the traditional mold of two parents working, not a lot of time spent with kids, uh, not a lot of community or tribe uh, centered around these kids' education, just essentially doing homework and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the other thing I'd be really curious about for that age group is, I I mean, this is going to sound silly, but there was a lot of really good things about the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, I think traditionally, before it got all about just selling cookies. Um, I And I wonder about like the things that the Boy Scouts used to teach back in the 80s and 90s, and maybe they still do, and I'm just not aware of it as much anymore. It, like just basic things of like tying a rope or like making a meal with nothing more than a few ingredients or uh, building like basic, you know, the basics of building things and, um, and then just like good citizenship, you know, like manners and how to be at a dinner table and so on. Like those things, like, I don't know where they're taught anymore and if they're taught. And I think part of it should it just should be taught in the home. But also I, I just wonder what if school had, like, instead of the lunchroom, you have a kitchen like for 10 people and, you know, there's, there's opportunities to actually make your lunch, kind of there and learning how to cook while you're in high school. And same thing with just like understanding basic sort of money management, um, financial literacy, like the stats around that. I'm not about to start sh- shaping those, but I think that would be really, really awesome. But yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Victor. You've well, been trying to say something here. <laughs> no, no, I, that's, that's it. I think the, the, I was going to ask you, like if you were kind of my partner in crime on this, where would you like nudge us to go? Yeah, well, what you just got me thinking of was what Maria Montessori wrote shortly before her death about what she thought the middle school years should be dedicated toward. Uh, She came up with a a pretty basic stage theory of of development for kids. And unfortunately, she died before she got uh, to finishing the high school and and college age stages. But what was really interesting is that everyone knows what a, a Montessori preschool looks like. And then less known are the Montessori elementary schools, but they're still pretty similar to other uh, elementary schools. You're learning academic subjects. You have homerooms, that kind of thing. Uh, They're mixed ages. That's one of the big differences. But then the middle schools are completely different. She said, Mm. you need to stop teaching academics, you know, so formally and, you know, sucking up so much of their time. And you should go 
let kids work on a farm or a working bed and mm-hmm. breakfast and actually produce stuff for people and then live in small houses with uh, house parents who are not anyone's parents but you know hired staff teachers essentially and and live in these little pods and practice all of these real world skills that are, are what are important and relevant to somebody who is age 12 because um, that's where you know you see this this huge drop off in attention span for academics because we're just plowing through K through 12 with the exact same model as if you know these kids are the exact same people with the exact same needs from ages 5 through 17 which is a ludicrous assumption and so yeah, she thinks it should be like an, a long summer camp type experience, like a kibbutz. Like you go live somewhere, you work together mostly with peers and with adults who are not your parents mm. to do real world work. There is some, uh, you know, academic learning, but it's more general and thematic and interdisciplinary. And it doesn't take up very much of your day. You know, you probably spend as much time chopping wood or cooking meals for your uh, your your cabin as you do learning about history. Yeah. So – um, as your partner, Victor, in this <laughs> realm, I would definitely, uh, you know, brainstorm with you in that direction. And I, I think it's an interesting dichotomy because I definitely see the value of what you're talking about with exploring cities and discovering needs and discovering local problems. Because, again, that's what I think adolescents are so uh, naturally uh, drawn toward is solving real people's problems, not these mm. these made up problems, these synthetic things that we create, uh, you know, as problem sets or as essay prompts in school. Um, and so I see the the power and necessity of doing that in an urban atmosphere where you can easily walk around and access lots of different people. You can experience lots of different uh, groups. Um, but then the Montessori idea of going off and retreating into the woods and having this uh, more of a, a camp type experience or a, a Boy Scout or Girl Scout type experience where you're developing all these kind of how to live successfully with other people, very basic interpersonal skills. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really appealing too. So maybe we could have some sort of very schizophrenic, you know, spend a week in the city, week in the in the farms, city farm, city farm, and then go international for a few weeks and then come back. And it would cost $100,000 and nobody would be able to afford it. And it'd be <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Right. And this is why Let's we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to make a good team. You and me. <laughs> Cause it'll always stay in the clouds. It'll just be <laughs> this, this, this magical idea that never touches ground. Exactly. Oh, that's man. great. Yeah. I, I mean, it's <clears throat> on one hand, I just like, I think, whoever's listening, if you're, you know, there are probably moments where you've been nodding or moments where you've been shouting, who knows? Um, I think what I really want to communicate more than anything is to just like more than the talk is to try things and to give things a legitimate sort of attempt. Um, and you don't need a lot of money or resources or people to, to start trying something and documenting it well and then sharing what you learned. I think there's just a lot to say for that. Um, and, and really, if there's anything from my own story, like all I did was I took one person, myself, through a, an idea that I had, 12 projects in 12 months, and then started bringing other people into it by sharing the story. And that was it. And here I am a few years later, still in the space, helping out, like working on a lot of different things and getting to be a part of a lot of people's lives at, you know, at points where they're really at a, at a, at a season of transition. So 
it, it starts really small, I think. Obviously, it's a pipe dream to like get millions of dollars to work on an idea, but I don't think that's that's where it starts. Yeah, and I think I share with you that history of having a story, some sort of formative educational experience that I authored for myself, which you know was for me kind of going away from the traditional path and the research science path back in college and diving into this totally different world of alternative education and unschooling and designing my major to study that. Uh, it sounds like for me, as with you, that story has been just our, our, our main form of currency. Just you know, relating that somehow generates a, a sense of trust in other people and that allows us to go on and do these other projects. Um, and so I see why storytelling is, is a you know, non-negotiable part of your experience institute uh, curriculum. And um, uh, I know we don't have too much time left, Victor. I wanted to come back to, to something that you mentioned earlier about uh, what goes on in the home and what's taught by parents and then what goes on in schools and, and how they there's an interplay between those two. So here's the question for you. Um, do you think that most educational success is really just a proxy for parenting success? Mm. Mm. Do you think that, that schools and educational institutions, even stuff like Experience Institute, is just icing on the cake and the cake is how we were raised and the beliefs that we were, we were given or nurtured as a young person? I, I think that's too grand of a generalization. And I, generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of generalizations. Ha, that's funny, generally. Wah, wah. Uh, uh, which is a – yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like some kids' lives have been changed by teachers. I guess you could still say that, yeah, their tough parenting is what led them to, or not good parenting is what led them to succeed in education or to succeed in the world. And in other cases, good parenting is what helps people succeed um, in the world. But I think there, there are just too many inputs these days more inputs than ever because of the thing in your pocket, your phone, the thing you're looking at, whatever screen you're in, taking in, the number of people you have access to, and in turn, the number of voices you have. There are just too many things um, to just limit it to just one or the other. And good parenting, um, or bad parenting for that matter, is a huge sort of uh, influence and always will be, but I, I don't think that means that education is just the icing on the cake or if that's, if I'm hearing your or question. Or it's just I, a placebo, you know, really. No, I mean, gosh, like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so. Like I, 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 and, and the question is somewhat leading. Like, do you think so? I, I, are you asking because you think it, you think education is just a placebo for essentially or is just really pointing back towards good parenting? Uh, no, I don't fully believe that. I think that it's more true than most people expect. Mm. I think that a lot of people give more um, value to the idea that school is such a formative and shaping experience um, than, than I think parenting matters a lot more than school. But no, it's not 100% and 0% for sure. And And there are teachers, there are institutions that very obviously change lives. And without the involvement of those people or organizations, then a, a young person's life would not be going in the same direction that it did. Um, you know, I think I'm a product of getting, of going to a good 
organization. Uh, so going to Berkeley and getting exposed to a, a community of people there and some of those people radically changed the direction of my life. And so, no, I, I definitely uh, I definitely concede that schools matter, but I think that we so easily just put all of our eggs into the school basket and say, I'm dropping my kids off at school. They are going to deal with them. They are going to educate them. It's not fundamentally my responsibility. I think it is fundamentally your responsibility. Um, It is our responsibility. Uh, You know, education does not happen at schools. Education happens all the time. And I think that's the first step in uh, better parenting, I think. Again, not a parent like you, just speaking Mm -hmm. from, from impersonal experience here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Hmm. Okay, Victor, let's wrap up. What is uh, one question that you have for me to wrap Uh, this podcast up? Where do you see your work going? I mean, what's like, where, where do you see all of this? You're, you're in your mid thirties now. You've been working on this longer than I have, right? Like you started your book was your first book was released in 2012. Uh, um, 2009. Oh, sorry, 2009. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah, Victor. My bad. Uh, your Maybe your <laughs> latest book was released. No, that was 2013. 2014. Gosh, I'm off. Okay, so you, <laughs> you have a couple books. You've been working on this for a long time. Where, where do you see this going, Blake? Like, where? what's the dent you hope to make? Like, what? when will you die a happy man or go to sleep a happy man, I should say? You don't have to die um, anytime soon. But, like, what? Where, <laughs> Thank you. Thank where you do you that. see this? Uh, <laughs> Where do you see this going? Uh, well, my hope is that I, I'm doing cool enough work right now that if I get hit by a car tomorrow, then as I'm laying there and, and slowly dying, that I I think, okay, I made pretty good decisions. Like, I did what I could. Yeah. Uh, that's the ultimate goal, of course. And uh, I think dent, the word that you used, is has definitely been on my mind recently because I've had the the privilege to work with really awesome young people Um who usually have been doing something alternative for a long time, like their parents started unschooling them from birth, or they were able to drop out of high school and they because they hated it, and um, and they were supported by their parents and, and you know cool institutions or alternative schools to be able to take this other path. And I've been lucky enough to do this through face to face programs like camps and my and my travel programs, and that's such rewarding work. But um, when you have to charge a couple thousand dollars for a program, that just fundamentally limits who you can work with. And, and for a long time, I've had this sort of uh, missionary zeal to, to preach to a, a wider audience, not just people who can afford to go on my programs. But I've also long been disillusioned with the path of like becoming a public school teacher. Even that, I don't feel like I would affect more people than I do right now. Mm-hmm. So um, my mind is definitely going in the direction of how to do something that can affect a lot of people, uh, probably something that's free, and um, but also how to do that in a way that that does not suck. I think most online courses suck. I think most online education is boring and unengaging, and it's just a different way to repackage the same boring old stuff that we already have, but it makes it cheaper for the provider. So um, – yeah, I think figuring out how to do online education better, something that can really be accessed you know, by a kid in Egypt, the kid in South Africa, the, the kid in Uganda, you know, just anywhere, and, and the kid, whatever, in the Bay Area, and the kid in Texas. So that's where I'm, I'm, I'm going. I got nothing solid to share with you 
right now, Victor, but thinking about how to create a bigger dent in the world, not just working with uh, a small group of people who can afford my programs, even if that is you know super personally satisfying to me, uh, I, I want to do something like that. Does yeah. that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think those are challenges that anyone who's building something of that they find really meaningful or impactful, they're asking, how, what is what is not just scale look like, but what does spread look like? How does it spread? Mm, um, I like that. And um, yeah, I think that's a great, uh, it's good to hear. <laughs> All right. Victor, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this ad-free podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can write a review on iTunes. You can share it on social media. You can email it to someone who might benefit from it. Or you can support it directly with a per-episode donation at offtraillearning.com slash support.